Hi, I'm Eunice Oladejo, and this is Policy Talks. On this episode, I sit down with Matthew Roche and George Tulufas, who have received the Canadian Foreign Policy Journal's Best Paper Award for their 2023 article titled Revisiting the Effectiveness of Economic Sanctions in the Context of Russia's Invasion of Ukraine. We discuss their research and findings and analyze the sanctions regime against Russia. George Tsulufas is a PhD student in the Political Science Department at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and an Adam Smith Fellow at the Mercatus Center. His work primarily revolves around comparative politics and international political economy. More specifically, his research focuses on political extremism, European politics, and various IPE topics, including currency competition. He is currently conducting research on extreme right parties in Europe while serving as a teaching associate at UCSB. Matthew Roche is a PhD student in the Political Science Department at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and an Adam Smith Fellow at the Mercatus Center. His primary research interests are international political economy and foreign policy, though his work also addresses topics such as globalization, economic development, international trade and finance, infrastructure, economic inequality, and varieties of market economies. His work has been featured in various academic journals and news outlets. He recently conducted fieldwork in Ghana, Benin, and Togo as part of his dissertation, which examines Chinese economic engagement in West Africa and its maritime parts. Thank you, George and Matthew, for being with us today, and welcome to the show. A brief reminder to our followers and listeners that all opinions discussed today are reflective of the individual person expressing them and do not reflect the views of the interviewer, IFRS Canada, or the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs. Now let's dive into the show. Okay, so we're really excited to have you, Matthew Roche and George Tulufas here with us today. And first of all, congratulations on your CFPJ award. Um, I've looked at your paper and it was very insightful and also very thorough. And so uh, just a big congrats from iAffairs. So we'll get into kind of the introduction and history of sanctions a little bit. So to start off, as you note in your article, economic sanctions have been used as an instrument of state statescraft for centuries. Uh, can you tell us more about the history of the use of economic sanctions as well as the debate um, on its use? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so first off, thank you very much for, for having both George and I here. Um, and yeah, we're honored and delighted to uh, to accept the award for the, the paper. Um, so to, to start on your question, I think it's it's always really helpful just to start from the very basics um we hear the term economic sanctions used uh frequently but it's helpful to just give a very basic working definition uh so typically how we would define it would be uh, actions that a sender takes to limit or end economic relations with the target typically in an effort to persuade the target state to change uh any objectionable objectionable policies so the idea here is that uh we have a economic relationship uh, and I'm trying to 
take away or threaten to take away uh, some aspect of this relationship that the other party is benefiting from. Um, so uh, in its in its most basic form, it's been used for, for centuries, for eras, uh, even going back to Greek city-states, the Athenian Empire uh, was known to prevent some of its rival city-states from accessing its markets. Uh, in the um, 19th century, we saw Napoleon use or impose what's called the continental system, an effort to uh, strangle the, the British economy. Uh, throughout the 20th century, we start to see this tool being used more frequently and with a bit more sophistication. Uh, so an example of that is in the prelude to uh, Pearl Harbor and the lead up to Pearl Harbor. We see the U.S. imposing sanctions on Japan, uh, both to prevent its aggression in East Asia and also uh, with the anticipation that war might break out. Um, so we've really seen it used across eras, uh, across time. However, as an instrument, uh, it, it has developed from what was relatively blunt to, uh, in our current globalized economy, uh, a more sophisticated instrument. So uh, beginning with things like quotas, tariffs, embargoes, uh, we now see the rise of financial sanctions, uh, capital controls. Uh, so the tool has, itself has evolved over time. Um, the main puzzle that our article is really focusing on is this idea that sanctions have really uh, never been more popular than they are today. And yet, a lot of scholars, uh, a pretty strong chorus of voices, would argue that they're actually not very effective. Uh, in many cases, they fail to achieve uh, their declared goals. Uh, this is a really interesting puzzle. Uh, so this is really the main impetus for the article that George and I wrote um, and uh, essentially a, a main point of our, uh, of our paper was to uh, try to try to shed some light on this, try to dig into this, this puzzle uh, a little more deeply. Mm -hmm. And well, that's first of all, a very extensive history and one that you don't really think that it goes back to like Greek times. Um, but a case study that you focus on in the paper is Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So I'm curious if you can tell us about what the sanction regime on Russia has looked like in response to this invasion. And then also off of that, since the time that this article was written, which was 2023 or published 2023, have there been developments uh, within this? Yeah, absolutely. I'll, I'll jump in again and, and take that one. Uh, so yeah, the invasion of Ukraine uh, and subsequent multilateral sanctions against Russia is really what prompted us to write this paper. Both George and I have, have been in, involved in the literature uh, and we thought this was a really opportune, opportune moment to shed light, uh, kind of wedding together academic scholarship with uh, foreign policy and current events. So since this invasion, which we're now actually very close to approaching the two year anniversary on February 24th, uh, so it's almost two years since the invasion occurred and two years since sanctions were first put in place. So it was by this coalition, multilateral coalition led by the United States, uh, but also including other members of the quote unquote West, uh, the UK, Japan, Australia, New Zealand, South Korea, Singapore, Taiwan, et cetera. Um, so it would be difficult to summarize uh, all of the sanctions in, in one brush. Uh, in, in many cases, each of the individual coalition members have chosen the, the, 
their own sanction measures to implement. Part of this has to do with their variegated relationships with Russia. Uh, they all have different uh, means of leverage on Russia's economy. Uh, so this means that just implementing one standardized package doesn't necessarily make sense. Uh, we do see a lot of common themes, however. So I'll just mention maybe a few of the larger actions that were taken. Um, so notably, uh, the U.S. froze uh, over $600 million of Russian state assets. Um, so major Russian banks were removed from the messaging system known as SWIFT uh, that allows banks to communicate with other with each other uh, when transactions come in. So by preventing them from accessing uh, SWIFT system, it makes it really difficult to uh, engage in bank-to-bank -bank transfers. Uh, the UK froze uh, numerous assets um, from Russian banks. Uh, they placed heavy restrictions on uh, Russians from making further deposits in UK banks, uh, from Russian companies from uh, borrowing money. Uh, Canada imposed similar measures. Uh, they imposed a fresh wave of sanctions on over 1,400 uh, individuals and businesses. Uh, many of the, of the sanctioning countries have phased out fossil fuel imports from Russia. So uh, this is gas, this is petroleum, this is coal. Um, so many are either on track or, or have already phased out um, fossil fuel trade. Uh, on top of this, we saw some, some notable examples of individuals being sanctioned. So Vladimir Putin himself, uh, Sergei Lavrov, but also several other wealthy and um, prominent Russian businessmen. Uh, probably one of the best examples of this is uh, a lot of yachts were seized. This is kind of a visible example. Um, however, the, uh, it's been difficult to identify many assets of, of certain um, individuals and businesses. Uh, so it makes actually enforcing some of these measures relatively difficult. So I like to mention that caveat. Um, the final thing I'll say is that uh, a lot of companies have, have chosen to uh, divert investment from Russia. So we saw Coca-Cola, McDonald's, Starbucks, uh, closing up some of their shops. So uh, these are kind of the major examples that we saw uh, involved in these various tranches of, of sanctions. And so with that very extensive list of um, sanctions against Russia, there are lots of conversations about whether or not these have been effective in the goals of um, all of these states. So I'm wondering if you can tell us more about these opposing views that um, arise when it comes to determining if economic san sanctions are effective and what are both sides of this debate of effectiveness? Yeah, uh, I'll answer that question. Uh, but before I do that, I want to also thank you for inviting us and for the award. Um, so at a first glam uh, glimpse, uh, one might assume that um, the effectiveness of economic sanctions could be defined in terms of the centers um, intended or declared goals, right? So in the example about Russia, this would mean um, that the declared goal was for Russia to stop the military intervention um, at all. 
However, sanctions can, all, can also represent important tools of state, statecraft used to achieve other ends. Some examples of that uh, might include deterring future wrongdoing from the sanctioned country, destabilizing the targeted state, uh, demonstrated resolve to allies, but also very importantly to domestic constituencies, um, and showing to the to your domestic public that you as a as a state you are doing something against a state that might be uh, bending the international norms and rules. Um, another example uh, would be, you know, upholding these international norms. Uh, or lastly, sending messages of disapproval in response to, uh, you know, this kind of objectionable uh, behavior. Um, so it's very possible that the sender might have multiple layers of goals, right? And some of them might be hidden. Um, so with that said, it's very difficult to judge the effectiveness of um, economic sanctions if we don't know or if we're limited, uh, if we don't know for which goals we're talking about and we are um, limited um, and we are using a narrow definition of, achi of achieving a single de declared goal. And this is the discrepancy that possibly led to the original question that, um, that you know, started the whole debate that Matt uh, mentioned earlier about why right now, as we speak, uh, economic sanctions are the most popular foreign policy tool and the most, uh, well, um, the most used, but also evidence shows that they're not as effective when it comes to their declared goal. For example, uh, Russia did not stop their military intervention. So that's that's uh, that's one key aspect of our article. And off of that, so you you choose a certain way to define effectiveness in the article. So can you tell us about the categories that you outlined in the article um, of defining effectiveness and then what your conclusions are on whether the sanctions against Russia have been effective. And you kind of have touched on that a little bit. Yes. Uh, so based on what I said earlier about uh, the possibility of uh, multiple goals, some declared, some being uh, more hidden, um, for our purposes, uh, we began with the premise that before any productive conversation uh, or research, uh, regarding sanction effectiveness can take place, effectiveness must be defined in relation to objectives. And to do that, uh, we went back to a, a 1986 article by James Lindsay uh, that suggested that the success of sanctions uh, should be judged in relation to five dimensions, different dimensions. Compliance, uh, which uh, meaning, you know, pretty much forcing the target to alter its immediate behavior. In, in the example with Russia would be for Russia to stop the military intervention. Um, subversion, meaning either removing the target's leaders, in that case would be Putin, uh, while leaving the political system in place, or overthrowing the entire governing regime of the targeted state, especially when we're talking about authoritarian regimes. Um, a third goal is uh, deterrence, meaning that we would want to dissuade the target from repeating the disputed action in the future. Uh, there were a lot of concerns when uh, 
uh, the, the Ukrainian invasion uh, happened that Russia would do that to other territories. So that would be an example of deterrence. Um, the fourth goal uh, would be international symbolism, meaning sending messages to other uh, members of the world community, to other states, right, that might want to mimic the behavior of the targeted state. And so this disapproval for, uh, their, for you know, the targeted state's actions. And last one, the fifth goal uh, is domestic symbolism, um, which, uh, which means that, you know, like when, to go back to our example, to make it a little bit more clear, uh, when the, Russia, the Russian invasion in, in uh, Ukraine happened, there was a lot of backlash from uh, citizens all around the world, right, from the domestic publics. In order for the governments to appease these publics and to show that they're doing something because in all of the democratic states they're going to come an election time and the governments are going to be judged based on what they did uh, in foreign policy as well. They wanted to show to their publics that we took, we took some action against uh, a behavior that was criticized. So those are five dimensions that um, we suggest in our article that the effectiveness should be should be judged uh, based on this. Thank you for that overview. And those are very interesting and important ways to define it. So moving on a little bit, you mentioned that um, sanctions can have negative effects on GDP growth as well as other domestic components. So I'm wondering if you can talk about what the impact of sanctions have been at the individual level um, and specifically on human rights within Russia. I'm going to I'm going to talk uh, generally, not just in Russia, but generally about, uh, you know, some of the of the uh, negative impacts uh, of sanctions. Um, I would like to start with uh, with a, with an article from uh, Goodman and others that showed that there is a significant a significant negative effect of international uh, sanctions on uh, GDP, GDP growth um, and its domestic components like consumption, investment, uh, government expenditures uh, in the target country. And obviously this directly hurts the citizens of this uh, country, right? Additionally, there is a significant portion of the literature that suggests that the, these negative effects are disproportionately shared by more vulnerable uh, groups of the publics, of these publics, uh, such as the poor, uh, women, minorities within these targeted states. Um, we also have evidence that economic sanctions are quite effective in destabilizing the leaders of targeted states when these targeted states have a democratic regime. And why this is bad? Because there might be a destabilization of the entire democratic uh, system within that country. And this could lead to some democratic backsliding, which in turn hurts the citizens. Because on the other hand, authoritarian regimes are less susceptible to electoral pressures from economic sanctions, which if, if it was the opposite, it would be good for uh, the individuals of this country if we consider an authoritarian regime to uh, you know, not be the, the best situation, political situation. Uh, and lastly, um, there is another study 
from uh, Pexen and uh, Drury from 2010 that presented evidence showing that economic sanctions create new incentives for the political leaderships uh, leadership in the target country to restrict political liberties in an effort to undermine the threat to their authority. Uh, pretty much this means that because you know uh, we already uh, mentioned the negative effects on GDP, people in that country and the citizens are gonna be uh, upset with their government and their actions that led to their country to be uh, targeted by sanctions. And by restricting their political liberties, these governments uh, and the political elites secure their spot at the top of the hierarchy. So this of, uh, this means that sanctions offer often result in significant humanitarian suffering and human rights violations in the sanction uh, country, especially if this country is not a fully functioning democracy. And uh, in our case, in our example of Russia, it's a you know a, a flawed democracy or a hybrid regime. It's definitely not a fully functioning democracy. So we can you know probably see. Um, some of that uh, human rights violation taking place as a, a, an indirect result from uh, the sanctions. I'd add a little bit uh, on, on top of that to the current context of what's going on uh, in Russia. So if we're trying to assess the humanitarian effects, the economic effects, how they're playing out right now, um, I'll add several caveats. Uh, the first is that uh, due to lack of openness and transparency, it's really ha hard to collect the type of reliable data that social scientists would need to, to give a more confident response, uh, particularly one uh, that attributes any changes in, in human rights, any changes in economic conditions directly to sanctions, because uh, all sorts of other decisions are being made that impacts Russia's economy that uh, have nothing to do with sanctions or very little to do with sanctions. So uh, with those caveats being said, uh, we can use something like uh, Freedom House, which looks at uh, human rights across countries. They put a report every year and we do see a modest decline uh, compared to just before the war. I think the score was around 20 out of 100 since declined to about 16 out of 100. So we can see that the baseline before the uh, war was relatively low, before the sanctions was relatively low, um, uh, but we have seen some amount of deterioration. So that's an indicator that can help us. Um, however, if we're trying to analyze specific groups, it would be, uh, at least at this juncture, pretty difficult to, to assess how specific subsets uh, have fared better or worse than others. Um, in terms of the overall economy, uh, there was Kind of this idea that sanctions would be crippling they may cause the russian economy to collapse this didn't happen and part of this is the counterbalance of, of russia's additional war spending uh, war is a great stimulus for an economy so while on one end sanctions are imposing economic hardship uh the the boost from the war uh has at least somewhat offset so um Earlier projections that thought that Russia's GDP would would shrink enormously, uh, we haven't really seen that. Uh, in fact, in 2023, Russia's economy grew by about three and a half percent. So uh, that's at least in the immediate term. However, sanctions aren't 
typically meant to work so immediately. And if we assess over a longer time horizon, we may see, uh, particularly after war spending starts to decline, uh, that this effect will will um, will be stronger in terms of how, how the sanctions have a, an effect in the long term. Um, the other thing I was going to mention was the exchange rate. The ruble has declined by about 30%. Uh, and so uh, that does have an impact on the everyday life of, of Russia and their ability to access goods and prices that they pay um, when they go to stores. So we can see that there may be some marginal impacts. Uh, however, it hasn't been as devastating as some people had originally predicted. Okay. And based off of that information and your research and analysis, and you can, I guess, speak more high level or also use the example of uh, Russia, Ukraine. Is it possible to punish, in quotes, the state via sanctions without having an impact on citizens and on human rights? Yeah, so uh, in recent decades, um, the international community has witnessed a more frequent usage of what we call uh, what we call smart sanctions. Uh, which, uh, they, they have the goal of harming the elite supporters of the targeted regime uh, while imposing minimal uh, hardship on the mass public. In our example about Russia, that would be, uh, you know, trying to um, uh, seize some assets from the from Putin supporters, from uh, uh, prominent what we call oligarchs and try to destabilize Putin's support without, uh, you know, threatening to have, uh, without having any negative consequences for uh, the Russian public. So uh, smart sanctions may serve as a useful uh, focal point for policy coordinations, but there are scholars like Dresner uh, that have contended that uh, there exists no systematic evidence that smart sanctions yield better policy results um, on, on the targeted countries compared to traditional sanctions. So while it sounds like a good alternative, we don't have the evidence uh, that speaks to it. And um, in other words, it's very challenging to successfully apply smart sanctions in practice. And uh, referring back to our example of Russia, um, you know, seizing yachts may be easy enough, but trying to locate and seize the financial assets of specific firms or powerful individuals uh, is a complicated game of cat and mouse. So this, this would be an alternative, but yet we don't have the evidence to be certain that uh, this would be more effective by using smart sanctions, I mean. And then just to wrap up this question of effectiveness and impact and based off of like the questions that we've gone through, I believe in your paper, you kind of go through each um, of the goals that you have outlined and say whether or not the, the those goals have been met. So um, just wondering if you can do that for each of the, the goals, just to wrap up the the question of effectiveness and what you've concluded. Yeah, of course. Um, so when it comes to these five dimensions that our article talks about, um, first of all, I want to say that, you know, some of these um, goals and effectiveness should be judged in a more long term uh, horizon, time horizon. 
but you know like our our um uh, opinion is that when it comes to compliance which was the first dimension uh the sanctions were partially effective because on one hand russia did not outright stopped uh their uh, military invasion but they scaled down the attacks uh obviously at this point where we cannot be certain uh, certain we don't have evidence whether you know or, or how much of this toning down was uh, because of sanctions or other possible reasons but we would say that partially it was uh, the sanctions were effective when it comes to uh, subversion um the, I, we we find we find sanctions to be mostly ineffective because Putin, uh, Putin's domestic political position uh, um, has been weakened, but we don't know if this is true because, as Matt said earlier, you know it's difficult to find uh, reliable uh, statistical evidence in some countries, and also we don't know if this came from uh, as a direct result from sanctions. Certainly, we can say that you know. He wasn't overthrown from government, he didn't lose elections, nothing of that happened. So we would stick with mostly ineffective for subversion. Um, deterrence, we would say that it's, it was, there were, uh, the sanctions were mostly effective because, you know, as I, as I mentioned earlier, there were concerns that Russia, you know, uh, would engage in further, further um, uh, conflicts. Uh, I could, you know, say some examples like Chechnya, Dagestan, uh, South Ossetia. And this didn't happen. And um, we saw that Russia did not continue in other places that behavior of um, aggressiveness, right? So when it comes to deterrence, mostly effective. Um, when it comes to international symbolism, we also find uh, the sanctions to be mostly effective because the um, uh, the these sanctions uh, were effective in improving the image of sanctioning states among key international audiences, aka they were these states were shown that they did something about uh, the situation rather just th than uh, just being uh, witnesses to this invasion. And um, multilateral sanctions signal to members within the West that their interests are still fundamentally aligned. So they were, uh, you know, uh, sanctions were mostly effective. And lastly, when it comes to domestic symbolism, they were also domestic. Uh, they were also mostly effective because, if we re remember that in the very beginning, uh, there were like a huge backlash from, you know, the publics all around the world against this military invasion, and um, the public supported. We, we would see that with uh, certain polls that were happening in different states, and we have the data, uh, that the, the, the public supported this course of action by their government, which means that the government, if they had uh, the goal of signaling to their domestic public and audience that they did something about that situation, they were effective on doing that by imposing uh, economic sanctions. Looking ahead a little bit, there are current uh, and ongoing discussions within the G7 about the possibility of confiscating 
the frozen Russian central bank assets uh, to be then like redirected to Ukraine to be used for the reconstruction of Ukraine. And so this obviously is a little bit outside of the realm of sanctions, but kind of within the same family. Um, so how would you categorize the goal of this decision within those dimen dimensions that you've um, listed previously? Yeah, so at least from our analytical approach, uh, the way that we've been taking uh, analyzing the sanction regime is, is an entire package. So each individual uh, active sanctions, whether an individual country chooses to take a new measure to add to their sanction package, we're analyzing that in its entirety um, as a collective. So this would be viewed as another action in this collective regime that we, we would then analyze through all of these dimensions. So it could be that it, it um, has implications for all of these goals, or at least that's the analytical approach we took with the paper. That's a really academic answer. So uh, uh, I'll give you a bit more of a hopefully satisfying answer that's more subjective, it's kind of my own opinion. But at least for me, uh, I would see a lot of symbolism in this act. Uh, notably, uh, as George was just talking about domestic symbolism, we're seeing that a, a fair amount of fatigue is beginning to set in. Uh, particularly with domestic publics who initially were enthusiastic about sending aid, which is effectively taxpayer money, uh, to contribute to the war effort. We're seeing that um, in many of the uh, sanctioning countries that the enthusiasm is, is starting to taper off. So um, from, from my view of this, part of this may be to assuage some domestic concerns that it's just taxpayer money going to Ukraine. Uh, and there's the suggestion that it's not just going to be coming from sanctioning countries, but it's, it's actually going to be uh, funds coming from Russia that will then go to support the reconstruction of Ukraine, which may be more politically uh, appealing to those domestic audiences. And do you think, and you've, you've kind of touched on this, but just generally, what would the impact be in Russia economically um, politically, and then if you have any insight on generally with the world economy, which is like a pretty large question, um, but I'm interested in hearing what the Russian side of things would look like and then more as a high level in the world. Yeah, um, well, so an interesting analog is that a similar thing, uh, a similar move was attempted in the US uh, when the Taliban retook power. Uh, these assets that were held in U.S. banks that had belonged to the Afghani government then theoretically changed hands to the Taliban government, uh, which for many Americans was uh, unthinkable that we would then give money back to the Taliban government. Uh, so the idea was that these funds would then be confiscated and given to 9-11 uh, survivors. Uh, this has since been held up in domestic courts um, for legal reasons. Uh, and it's it's perhaps unlikely that this policy decision will actually bear, uh, bear out in the real world. Uh, and this would be a similar issue uh, in terms of the Russian sanctions that uh, several European officials have, have stated that this may pose some serious legal problems. Um, so there are a lot of hurdles to us actually seeing this happen in practice. I should, I should point that out. Uh, however, if it were, uh, if we engage the thought experiment, uh, seizing upwards of $300 billion would be devastating to the to the Russian economy. There's no doubt about that. 
but it also would risk breeding a lot of resentment. Uh, just as a as another source of comparison, uh, after World War One, Germany was forced to put the bill for uh, for this, and it, uh, in today's dollars, it would have been about four hundred billion dollars. Uh, we all know how that story turned out, and it, it bred really bitter resentment, discontentment within Germany. Uh, you can imagine that uh, seizing three hundred billion dollars of, of Russian funds uh, would would probably stimulate a similar uh, resentment effect um, that could be really harmful. On top of that, uh, the world economic infrastructure is based on this principle of a, of a rule-based system. Um, so uh, Russia often makes claims that the, the these institutions have bias in them and a move of just outright seizing all these funds uh, without thinking of all the legal consequences, well, uh, that would more or less validate some of their claims. So uh, it could have potential devastating and uh, effects for Russia's economy, their ability to continue to wage conflict in the immediate term. However, such a move would be uh, fairly extreme and it may permanently damage uh, already eroding belief in, in the existing uh, world economic institutions. So uh, it would be a pretty extreme decision to at least take all of those funds and immediately hand them to Ukraine for reconstruction. Yeah, well, we'll see how that, I guess, plays out. Um, and then moving on to some of our last uh, questions, you, I think, George, you mentioned earlier that um, sanctions are one of the most commonly used foreign policy tools. Um, so do you believe that sanctions will continue to be a key foreign policy tool if we look ahead in the next like 15 to 20 years? Um, so I can I can jump in and take this one too. Um, so there's really not, not much doubt in my mind that they will remain to be uh, an important tool in the international system. Uh, a lot of our conversation today and in our article re revolved around Russia. Uh, but in fact, a lot of the conversations, at least that are happening in the US, um, that are happening in many Western countries, uh, are also thinking about China um, and, and relations that have in many ways become more complicated uh, in recent decades. So uh, there is a likelihood that we'll continue to see a, a complex international system that has varied forms of both cooperation uh, and conflict. And economic sanctions are a really useful tool. Um, they also, in addition to um, accomplishing all these goals that we discussed, they're a really important form of communication. Uh, that's another way to think about them is they send signals to different actors in the international system. So uh, in my view, they aren't going extinct anytime soon, uh, at least in the short and medium term. Uh, I don't want to project too far into the future. There may be some black swan events and external shocks that totally change uh, the, the environment. But for now, I'm, I would make a pretty safe bet that at least in the next decade or so, uh, they aren't going anywhere. So um, 
I wanted to add something that is very relevant to the question that you just asked. Um, because when we started writing this article, we had in our minds the question of, you know, um, the relation of, of, of effectiveness of economic sanctions and them being a very popular and a key foreign policy tool, right? But I think a lot of the literature um, misses another point on, on uh, what would be an alternative foreign policy tool. Right, because even if we assume that economic sanctions are not effective, right, which again that's not what our article says, but even if we would assume that, uh, a question would be, what's a better alternative, right? And a lot of uh, the literature uh, doesn't provide a better alternative because if an alternative would be military intervention, uh, mean, we all know that this is very costly. This would cost uh, human lives, a lot of resources. So this is out of the question for many situations, right? Uh, and in our example of the you know Russian invasion in Ukraine, that was out of the question. Nobody was talking about you know um, uh, the EU or the US sending troops in Ukraine. So then we we are left with very few choices, right? Uh, so I think a key um, a key um, argument to take and to add to our discussion is that we also need to, to look at the effectiveness of the other foreign policy tools and compare them to the effectiveness of economic sanctions, you know, in the way that we suggested, uh, again, based on what Litsi said uh, in 1986. Yeah, thank you for that caveat. And moving to to wrap up the interview, I'm wondering if you have any final words or sentiments that you want to leave with us, or if there's anything that you'd like to add to um, any of the previous questions that we've gone through. I, I could add uh, something, you know, like um, something else I wanted to mention that um, because economic sanctions are essentially a sig signaling mechanism, um, sometimes it's very difficult for a political scientist to find statistical evidence about their effectiveness in any of the five dimensions that we mentioned, right? So, and also uh, the, the time periods play an important role, right? Some of these um, goals might be achieved in 20 years from now, right? So it's very difficult for us to sometimes even judge the effectiveness no matter what you know like um, metric you use or you know how many dimensions it's difficult and although economic sanctions talk to a very specific um, you know like uh, statistical analysis of you know what was the economic sanction imposed their uh, consequences uh, and effects are very difficult to actually measure Thank you for that. Um, and on a final note, George, you're in Greece and Matthew, you're in New York. So how did this collaboration come about? Yeah, sure. So uh, George and I are uh, doctoral students and we actually have been in the same program um, at the University of California, Santa Barbara. So we're both approaching the end of our dissertation uh, and we're both doing some different forms of field work to complete our dissertation. 
So uh, George has been conducting some research in, in Greece and I recently returned from uh, Ghana. So uh, as we're looking towards uh, finishing our dissertation and, and entering the job market, uh, it's allowed us a little bit more flexibility, but we uh, originally uh, got to know each other and became good colleagues uh, back at the University of California, Santa Barbara. That's awesome. Well, thank you both so much for joining us today on Policy Talks. We really appreciate the time that you've taken to chat and we appreciate your insights and expertise on this topic. And we hope to stay in touch in the near future. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. A big final congratulations to George and Matthew on their CFPJ Best Paper Award. Their article titled, Revisiting the Effectiveness of Economic Sanctions in the Context of Russia's Invasion of Ukraine, is available to read in Volume 29, Issue 3 of the Canadian Foreign Policy Journal on the war in Ukraine and its global implications. That's it from us for this episode, and we hope to see you next time on Policy Talks. Thank you.